from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, Joe Cohane, author of The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. I think there's catharsis in realizing that we're not alone in our struggles. I think there's wisdom in understanding that other people's struggles can be greater than ours. And I do think it is possible to do it. It's possible to connect across like fairly broad social, gender, political differences, all that stuff. It's a relief to know that we can actually live together despite all the, the, the people who say otherwise. Why connecting with strangers, a lost art in this digital age, is so important for our personal and professional well-being. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm a radio and podcast host. I talk to people I don't know for a living. So you might think I'm an extrovert, right? That I love talking to strangers, that it just comes naturally. But I'm here to admit, it doesn't. In fact, I hate small talk. I'm terrible at it. And that's actually why I started out as a journalist, because armed with a notepad and a microphone, it gave me an excuse to talk to people I didn't know without feeling awkward. But all that said, I'm convinced that talking to strangers, being confident enough to approach someone you don't know and make a connection, even if it's just for a few minutes while waiting in line or riding the bus, I am convinced that those interactions make us better people. Those connections help us empathize with people from different cultures and religions who might have different political views. But I worry that as a species, we are getting worse at having those encounters, especially as we bury our noses into our phones more and more. And that's why I wanted to talk to Joe Cohane. Joe is a longtime journalist and editor of magazines like Esquire, Entrepreneur, and Hemisphere. And he recently wrote the book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Joe believes that making the effort to engage with strangers Yes, even small talk can not only make your own life better, but can actually make the world better. And now he has an entire book filled with research to prove it. Joe was born to an Irish-American family in Quincy, Massachusetts, right on the southern border of Boston. And the family business, 
was a funeral home. But Joe says being raised in and around a funeral home wasn't morbid. It could actually be pretty fun. I think the good part was uh, it gave me access to a parking lot, to a pretty good parking lot. <laughs> so we used to ride our bikes in the parking lot of the funeral home, and we used to play wiffle ball in the parking lot of the funeral home, which like, right. my father was amazingly <laughs> indulgent of us in doing that. Like, I don't know if you're like a family coming to, you know, make funeral arrangements and there are like four kids racing bikes around the funeral home. Was your dad the person that, you know, people who are, who are grieving, was he sort of the first one they met at the home to kind of talk through plans? They had a staff. Um, I think growing up, they probably had 10 or so people working there. There were a few funeral homes, a few facilities that they used. Um, it kind of grew as, as I got older, they kind of acquired a few more. Um, so it would depend on who was available that day, but my, my siblings would definitely do it. Uh, my father would definitely do it. Um, I remember, um, the office, the main office was like right by the front door. So you would walk in and you would see the office that people would, would, um, have these appointments in. It would be the first thing you'd see. How would you describe your house? Was it full of laughter and jokes or was it very serious and um, solemn? Yeah, they there's an old joke about Irish families that there are teasing families and there are hitting families. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Mine was a teasing family. Uh, they're really, really funny. My father is incredibly funny. My siblings are really funny. Um, you know, one thing that surprises people that is that morticians are – generally a pretty funny group of people. Um, everybody I met was like really personable and, and kind of nice to be around. The, the sort of image of like this ghoulish kind of wan figure and all in black doesn't really hold up because uh, it is like fundamentally a really social business. One of the things that you have talked about as a kid, you already would notice how easy your parents, how, how at ease they were around strangers. Like they could just, seems like they could just talk to anyone. Yeah, they're they're very good at it. And um, and it's funny, when I was doing this book, a lot of the people I spoke to uh, reported something similar. And these people could be introverts or extroverts. But the thing I heard over and over and over again was my dad talked to everybody and it mortified me when he was doing it. But, yeah, why did it mortify you? Oh, it didn't mortify me, but it, it seemed to mortify a lot of other people. Um, the kind of exposure that comes with talking to strangers. You know, if you're a teenager, like you feel like everyone's watching you anyways for any sort of violation of any social norm. Um, and so talking to strangers is kind of a violation of a social norm. So it was horrifying to a lot of people I spoke to. Uh, for me, it wasn't. For me, it, it was pretty natural. I grew up around social people. I grew up in a neighborhood where people talked to each other. Um, it was, I don't even think it occurred to me as unusual until much later. Um, and I was in a restaurant. I remember one thing in particular. Uh, I was in a restaurant with my parents. My father just leaned over and struck up a conversation with someone. And I was probably a teenager at that point because I was finally old enough to realize that this, like, this makes me feel something. Maybe it's awkwardness. Maybe it's mm. embarrassment. I'm not sure. But the ease with which he did it and how receptive people were, like I've never seen, it's really rare that anyone's ever rude to them. And they, they do the thing mm -hmm. that, you know, people claim drives them crazy. They talk to people on trains, they talk to people in restaurants, but the way they go about it with this kind of spirit of openness and curiosity, and they're also like funny and they're pretty personable people, um, just lowers everybody's defenses and and it allows them to continually accumulate friends and funny stories and enjoy vacations more and enjoy dinners more i mean my mother called me last week and she was like oh you're not gonna believe this we met these great people from ohio at a restaurant and so mm. they became like over the <laughs> over there sitting you know sitting close to these people in a restaurant they became friends now they're gonna go visit yeah. these people in ohio and now i have this woman that my mother met calling me because she wants me to come speak at her club like this, this uh -huh. stuff happens all the time <laughs> 
Well, let me kind of dig into this, this this Irish part of it for a moment. And and obviously this is hugely stereotypical, but um, I have had the experience, and I know lots of other people have had the experience of being somewhere in Ireland and going to a pub and people warmly talking to you, like random people talking to you. It is a very common experience. And I... I wonder, I mean, the way you describe your parents, I mean, obviously you're Irish-Americans, but I wonder, is there something about Irish culture and tradition that, I don't know, that just makes it easier or just, you know, that that people just talk to strangers? Yeah, it definitely became the culture. Um, I talk about this in the book. I try to figure out why certain cultures become more social than other cultures. So like why Mm. a place like Brazil would be warm and chatty and a place like Finland would be kind of standoffish and introverted. And what I kept seeing again and again and again was uh, strife and social tension um, often Mm. led to more social places because people needed to communicate with each other in absence of like strong central institutions, right? So in a place like, you know, I spoke to a sociologist from Mexico for the book, you know, Mexico is not known for its strong central institutions. So people have to rely on each other more to, to navigate the bureaucracy, which can be really convoluted, to, you know, has, ask people for favors watching their cars when they park their car. There are all these things that are, are done on like a civilian level and not an institutional level that require people to be more socially adept and more open to communicating with others. So for Ireland, given its history over the last, you know, 500 years, um, that might have made people social. Um, but it's, you know, there's like, like friendliness isn't just a love of humanity or like a blanket trust in everybody. Um, friendliness can also function as like a bit of surveillance. Um, mm. And I always thought that was really interesting too. When you go to a small town, people can be very welcoming and, and many of those people are wonderful and genuinely curious and, and totally worth talking to. But you also get an element of like, let's see who you are. You know, what are you doing here? Uh, tell me your story just to make sure that you're not an agent of chaos who's going to come in and like mess up the town. Yeah. So you you wrote this book, The Power of Strangers, and you you write about an experience you had in a in a cab where you start talking to to the driver whose legs were were like deliberately disabled. What what, what was the story that that ha- happened? Yeah, I was in I was in Nantucket actually on a screenwriting fellowship. <clears throat> and, um, you know, during the days we worked on our stuff and met with people. It was me and three other writers. And then at night we just went to parties. And so we were at a party one night and we we're coming back really late. And I remember telling them about journalism, how, you know, the, 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 the business is collapsing. Like there's no two ways around it. But, you know, while that's regrettable, one thing that I'm always grateful for is that it gave me the ability to talk to people all the time, to talk to strangers all the time. And I found that when you talk to strangers, uh, as long as you let them, they'll surprise you. You know, they might teach you something you don't know. They might reveal a side of themselves that you didn't expect was there. All this good stuff. So one night we we call a cab. It's like four o'clock in the morning coming back from this party. And I was like, watch, I'll show you. I'm going to talk to this cab driver because I'm like a fiend for talking to cab drivers. Uh, My -hmm. my wife is too. And so um, we get in and I start chatting with this woman. And I'm always fascinated by like people who live on a place like Nantucket, like especially if you're in a service capacity and you're not a rich person, what what that existence is like. So I start talking to her and she says, um, you know, we eventually get to where she comes from. And she grew up in, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And she had these two kind of socialite parents who she told me went in for this fad of binding uh, kids' calves um, because they had unsightly calves. They wanted her to have, like, slender, attractive calves. Um, And she said that this crippled her. Like, she had a limp for the rest of her life. 
So I was horrified. She's telling me this. And, uh, and I was like, well, what did they do? And they realized the damage that they did. Did they apologize? Did they take you to like a doctor? You know, how did they, how did they make this up to you? And she was like, no, they made me take dancing lessons. And so I was like, oh my God, they made you take dancing lessons. Why did they make you take dancing lessons? And she said, it's because they wanted to teach her to fall down more gracefully. Um, and I love that image is like, a, you know, sort of a philosophy in it, you know, like humans are, are deeply flawed. We're going to fail. The trick is yeah. to do it with a, with a measure of grace. And it really stuck with me. And, uh, and I thought about it a lot. And that was kind of the seed. I, I started wondering, like, you know, that, that was such a great, a great interaction and such a great thing that I'll carry with me probably for the rest of my life. Just that image, you know, that philosophy. Um, and I wonder if we can if we can go bigger on this, if there's a book in this. Um, and I started wondering about myself, too. Like, why wasn't I doing this as much as I used to? It's so interesting because I think many of us have had this experience where we're walking down a street, right? And for a moment, you just think everybody passing by has a story. It's like it's like shortcuts, you know? It's like you can just stop and then enter into somebody's world and then pause and then go to someone else's world. There's a, there's a movie. I would say it's my favorite movie of all time. Um, it's called Wings of Desire by Vim sure. Benders. And it's about angels in Berlin. And before the wall came down and you're in the heads of dozens and dozens of characters, in, including Peter Falk as Columbo in this film. And, and it makes you realize that every single character in a film or, or on the streets or in your life has a story that you don't know that is totally undiscovered, like that cab driver you met. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And it's, you know, it's a function of... Uh, this effect known as lesser minds that uh, that was mm. hit upon by a psychologist named Nicholas Epley working with someone named Juliana Schroeder, another psychologist. And what lesser minds is, is that um, psychologists have found, and this is general, this applies to pretty much everybody, we tend to think little of the people, of strangers, of people we don't know. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean we hate them. It doesn't mean that we want to oppress them or anything like that. It just means that we tend to underestimate their humanity. We can't see inside other people around us. And if we can't see inside them, we don't experience the richness of their experience. Mm. We don't um, see the vividness of their minds. They're just kind of like a, like a closed book to us. And so Juliana Schroeder, who I spoke to for this book, um, said the way to get past that is to talk to these people. And when you talk to them, it robs you of the ability to maintain this idea that they're not as human as you are, that they're simple organisms in some way, and they're not fully complex, fully fleshed out humans like you are. You know, and once you, you know, once you start thinking of it that way, it really opens your eyes. And it's, you know, it's an indictment of humanity to be like, we go through our days not fully attributing like humanity to the people around us. Uh, but it happens, and it's, it's going to be aware of it. But once you realize that, once you train yourself to kind of attribute humanity to everyone around you, uh, it can be kind of overwhelming. Um, when you interact with people, you, you see these kind of depths, these contradictions, these, uh, these really rich and, and vibrant experiences. Uh, you see a universe. You know, I, I always refer to it as like a glass bottom boat tour of the life of someone else. Uh, you see that their experience of reality is different from yours, which I, for me is the path to wisdom. Yeah, but it's also kind of comforting. It's sort of a reminder that that our stories aren't unique, and that and or that the experiences that we're going through, the the difficult ones, they're not unique. I mean, I, I not to minimize our own challenges, but there there are seven billion universes on planet Earth. You know, every single day. 
Yeah. And I, I think there's catharsis in realizing that we're not alone in our struggles, which is really good. I think there's wisdom in understanding that other people's struggles can be greater than ours. Um, and I do think there is relief. Like this is something I came back to a bunch of times when I was doing the book and even when I was coming up with the idea. Why did I always feel a sense of relief when I had a positive interaction with a stranger? And, you know, it might be because we just expect so little of these interactions. We're really pessimistic about these interactions. We don't expect them to go well. We don't expect people to be terribly interesting. And when they do, and also, you know, we may have a pessimistic idea of what the world is like. We may have been poisoned by stranger danger propaganda and all that stuff. But when we do find that we can have, like, a positive interaction, um, you don't have to worry about that person anymore. It's one little bit of the world that you don't have to worry about. You can say, okay, like that's taken care of. That bit over there is okay. The rest of it might still be scary to me, but that one I don't have to worry about. Um, and for me, it's it's just reassuring to know that we can connect with people, that we once we get past our hangups over it, it is possible to do it. It's possible to connect across like fairly broad social, gender, political differences, all that stuff. It's a relief to know that we can actually live together despite all the, the, the people who say otherwise. When we come back, how to start a conversation with someone you don't know on a subway. Joe Cohane says it's actually pretty easy. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So when author Joe Cohane decided that he wanted to write a book about talking to strangers... 
He started by tracking down psychologists who studied that sort of thing. And he discovered a seminar in London called Trigger Conversations, run by a self-described introvert named Georgie Nightingale. And I got in touch with Georgie, and she was like, you know, I'm doing a class on talking to strangers. And I was like, I'm buying a plane ticket to London. Like, I hope you have a chair for me. <laughs> so I went to London, and uh, it was great because she's very, she's very, very intelligent. She's a good teacher. She's a very good communicator. But she's also, she identifies as an introvert, which is interesting because you would think that anyone who's going to teach huh. strangers how to talk to strangers was going to have to be an extrovert. They're going to have to come naturally to this. Yeah. But yeah. It, it struck me as like what they say about tennis coaches, how great tennis players make bad tennis coaches. It's because it comes naturally to mm -hmm. them. They can't articulate what they're doing necessarily. But a mediocre tennis player has to understand every single, like, every single moving part of the game of tennis in order to be capable at it. Yeah. So for Georgie saying that she's she's not naturally extroverted, it allowed her to really dig in to all the different facets of what might seem to be an uncomplicated interaction. And so that makes her a really good teacher because she gets into everything from like our anxiety about it, the structure of a conversation, eye contact, all these all these different things. And so taking the class was really invaluable. And so clearly it's people who are trying to improve themselves, right, and and get better at, at doing this for a variety of reasons, whether in the business context or just like to, to, to live a, a more fulfilling life. And how does she start? How does Georgie start? Like, how do, how do you begin to teach? Because I, I'm a professional interviewer, right? This is what I do. And I've been in this profession in some form for 25 years. And um, I hate small talk. I really do. Um, and so I identify with Georgie being an introvert. And I'm curious, how does she teach it? What does she say? It is a lot of training us away from bad habits. So so we would start with uh, just talking about how the prospect of, of talking to strangers makes us feel. Do we feel anxious? Do we feel it in our bodies? That sort of thing, like really getting to those hangups because people have a lot, there's a lot of inhibitions or a lot of things that keep us from doing this. And then we would move to eye contact, which, you know, Jillian Sandstrom, the psychologist, talked about this, but she realized at a certain point, and this was like an epiphany for her career, that she just didn't look at anyone anymore. She lived in Toronto and she looked at the ground. And then she looked around and she said, everyone's looking at the ground. This is really weird for a social species to do this. And so she started looking people in the eye and it kind of opened up her, her whole, you know, her whole, whole avenues of research for her. So we start by looking each other in the eye. For a long time, hmm. uh, which was super <laughs> awkward, right? Because you don't know these yeah. people. Uh, and I'm right. jet lagged, you know? Um, and so we just do it. You do it for like a whole minute. And you look at each other and she was just like, how does it make you feel when you do this? And for all of us, it felt super weird. So she's like, we're going to do it until it doesn't feel weird anymore. And you're going to get comfortable with it because you can't have a conversation without looking someone in the eye. We worked on things that had nothing to do with talking. So that was, that was kind of the genius of this too, is that the key to talking to strangers is listening and noticing. So mm -hmm. we would listen to each other. And we, we were, you know, Georgie kind of taught us about listening, how you listen on different levels. And the right level you want to listen to is a level where you're not listening for something you're interested in, right? And this is, we really have to train ourselves away from doing this. But to not mm -hmm. do the thing where someone is talking about something and they're just kind of going and then you're like, oh, baseball, I like baseball. And then you just talk about yourself for 45 minutes. Um, I have definitely been guilty of that in the past. But to, to train yourself away from looking for a thing that you can talk about um, is super important. To relinquish control of the conversation is really uncomfortable and really important. Um, so the goal to Georgie and for the class was to let the person get to the point that they, they want to get to. 
Um, and they might not even be able to articulate it. You, you can help them articulate it by asking good questions, um, but not leading them, you know, not interrogating them, just asking why, why is that? Like, what did you hope to gain from that experience? You know, hmm. who are you? Those sorts of things, like real like journalism 101 questions. As we go through it, Georgie keeps asking, how do we feel? How do our bodies feel when we're doing this? And it was, you know, it, it was very uncomfortable. This is, this is, feels really unnatural to do it. Uh, you feel really vulnerable. You feel maybe kind of embarrassed. Um, but then, you know, going from there to getting into questions, to getting into openers, to getting into ways to get around the social norm against talking to strangers. And it just becomes more and more advanced as you go. Um, but it was great for me because I, it permitted me to rebuild myself from scratch, which is what I wanted for this. I wanted to be the mediocre tennis player who became the tennis coach. I wanted to be able to articulate every single part of this interaction and really understand all the things that make it valuable, but all the things that make it dauntingly difficult for people. Hmm. You know, uh, what you're describing sounds so helpful uh, because, uh, like, who breaks down interactions like this? But, I mean, there is a f such a fine line between coming across like like being genuinely interested in someone and, uh, you know, being creepy or, like, being annoying or b being intrusive. Like, the nuance is, is just hard to wrap my head around, you know. And, and, and the prospect of getting it wrong is just mortifying. So how do you, like, how do you train for that? Yeah, it's really true. And, and I'll say vehemently, Guy, that I am not encouraging anyone to become the person who, like, buttonholes <laughs> someone on a bus and talks to them for three hours, like, in, in, you know, completely impervious to the signals they're getting. Right, right. Um, you have to be very literate. You have to be emotionally literate. You have to learn to read body language really well, and you have to be respectful. Because people are going to be wary, right? When you come up to someone, they're going to be a little wary of you. They might think that you're actually a threat. They might think that you're trying to sell them something, or this is some mm. social media play or something gross. Um, the best way to demonstrate that it's not any of those things is to be curious, to be respectful, right? To keep your distance, to don't, don't touch them or get too close or anything like that. Um, do it in public when it's well lit and there are people around so, you know, they don't feel like they might be in physical threat. Um, but a big thing that Georgie taught me was because you're breaking a social norm, a great way to do it is to just say that you're aware that you're breaking a social norm. So what one of Georgie's great insights was if you're going to talk to someone on the subway, number one, notice something, you know, don't just start talking to someone randomly. You want to notice something about them or something that might be interesting or something that, you know, you might, you might have a comment about. Um, respectful, of course. But then say, look, I, I know we're not supposed to talk to people on the subway, but can I ask you a question? Or can I make an observation or something like that? Just to show like you're sufficiently in possession of your faculties to know that you're mm. doing something that's unusual. People find it kind of audacious. They can find it kind of charming, but it'll at least buy you a second. Right. It'll buy you a second to ask your question or make your statement. And then from there, you can just let it go. Um, it, depending on, you know, what you're talking about or what you're asking, you just follow the conversation. You let the person talk, um, you know, try a little bit. If they're really not in the mood, then just say thank you. And uh, I apologize and back away. But I, I found um, I was rejected almost never. You know, I'm also interested in the research data uh, around the, the benefits of talking to strangers. Um, because the conclusion of your book was not like, hey, you do this fun thing that's kind of quirky. No, I, I mean, it's it's what you're saying is that there's also real data that backs up the argument that we should be talking to strangers. Yeah, yeah. This is this has been you know demonstrated in research by Epeline Schroeder, um, but mainly by um, Jillian Sandstrom at the University of Essex, who's done tons of work on this. 
people who talk to strangers, number one, go in very pessimistic about how it's going to go, right? So their expectations are very low. Uh, It's not a high bar to clear, and the bar is always cleared. People tend to really enjoy it and find it surprisingly pleasant um, and enjoyable and and maybe life-affirming, maybe enriching in some way. But Sandstrom and Epley and Schroeder have found, at least the people who did these studies or who participated in these studies, they came back and they reported that they felt happier. They felt more connected to the places where they live and the people that they live among. Um, they might have felt more trusting. They might have felt more optimistic about humanity just by virtue of having like a pleasant interaction with one stranger. Um, we've seen that talking to strangers and these can even be passing interactions it can can alleviate feelings of loneliness which is really important because right now loneliness is is a you know frankly crippling social problem for a lot of western nations mm. um it causes it causes a great deal of damage both for the individuals but also for societies it can lead to radical views and violence and all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. um and also it causes it causes a great deal of damage both for the individuals but also for societies it can lead to radical views and violence and all kinds of stuff um and also Talking to strangers, you know, as equals, uh, can reduce partisanship. It can reduce prejudice. There are all these benefits to what seem like pretty simple interactions, but, you know, we know that they're more complicated than these. Interacting with other people, um, forcing ourselves to confront, you know, their complexity and kind of engage with their reality is really enriching. Um, It Mm. makes us feel more rooted in the world. It makes us more empathetic. um, And it makes us feel better about the people that we share a planet with, uh, which is a pretty, pretty remarkable thing for, for, you know, just chatting with someone at the Starbucks you go to or something. When you think about how to talk to somebody, make small talk, right? Like, and, and you've described yourself as being maybe a bit more at ease with it and, and have always been. Um, do you practice topics or ideas in your mind? Like, do you say, well, we could talk, I could talk about this or this or that. Is it that strategic and that thought out? Yeah, it, it's definitely early on. I did this thing once when I was an editor. I sent a young staffer and, and you know, I, I found again and again and again in this book that young people tend to suffer from pretty, pretty significant social anxiety just yeah, for lack of yes, practice, you yes, know, in real life. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, uh, he was having a lot of romantic difficulties. And uh, and I was like, why don't you just go to bars and ask people for like to be your therapist? Like, uh, just go talk to bartenders <laughs> and see what they see, what kind of advice they give uh-huh. you and bar yeah. and and like see what the, and he was horrified. Like I had to, I had to browbeat him, uh, this poor guy into doing this. Uh, and he was very unhappy about it, but he did it. This is the, you know, guy, this is the joy of being an editor. Um, so he goes out and uh, he spends two days, spends a whole weekend going to bars and just being like, listen, can I ask you a question? I got a situation on my hands. Like, I would love some input. And people were fantastic to him. Uh, they were great. They were like, yeah, okay, I'm all in. Like, tell me your story. And, and, uh, and he, you know, he's very candid about it. He didn't tell his personal stuff in the, in the actual, you know, story because that was personal. But people really responded to it and they really liked it. They liked the challenge. They were flattered by the fact that this kid was like asking them for advice. You know, no one ever asks anybody for advice. So that's pretty flattering when you do it. And then just the challenge, you know, the challenge of taking your life experience and, and trying to use it to help somebody else who you'd never met before. Also knowing that whatever you say is just going to disappear into the air when you're done. Um, but that sort of approach I really liked. You know, I used to I used to write for the Boston Globe, and the legendary mm. editor of, Mar- of the Boston Globe was a guy named Marty Baron, who was you sure. know, in Spotlight. So I remember when I was young, I, I, Marty took me to lunch, and um, we were just talking. And I'm a kid, you know, I'm 24, 25, or something like that. And uh, and I remember at the end of the lunch, he turned to me and he said, "Give me some free advice." 
And so this guy is like a titan, right? This guy's like a hero. He's the best <laughs> newspaper editor in the country. And he's asking some like kind of punk 24-year-old or 25-year-old for free advice. And I love that. And uh, and I do that all the time sometimes, just being like, you know, tell me something new. Give me some free advice. And people are like, okay, okay, yeah, and I'll, t- I'll take you up on that. Um, and they tend to be really responsive. And when they tell you something, you get a little taste of, of who they are and what their life is like. And sometimes you get some, some pretty good advice. Do you remember the advice you gave to Marty Baron? I told him to fire all of his columnists and hire me. <laughs> he did not take me up on my advice. <laughs> I told you, I was, a, I, was a, I was kind of a handful in my 20s. When we come back in just a moment, Ted Lasso, Matthew McConaughey, and a bunch of hyper-cooperative apes. Stick around. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. If you go back to the earliest humans thousands of years ago, you might think they kept to themselves, you know, trying to avoid strange and unknown tribes. Because, after all, it was a dangerous time. But Joe Cohane says, no, that's not the case. Talking to strangers is what made early humans strong. I went back through the anthropological record because I wanted to understand the reality of how, you know, hunter-gatherer bands existed. Because tribalism has a pretty bad name, right? We think of tribalism, we think of, like, it's a closed, fixed group of people that hates the other people who aren't them. The reality is much more complicated. Uh, there was a guy named Douglas Fry who studied violence in hunter-gatherer societies really extensively, probably more extensively mm. than anybody else. 
And he found that these groups, these bands of hunter-gatherers, were actually much more cosmopolitan than we give them credit for. So the idea here is it's called fusion fission. Mm -hmm. And what, what it means is that there wasn't a fixed group of people who just like stayed together forever. They found ways to interact with strangers, with other, with other groups, right? And, and members would leave one group and go to another group and then maybe come back with like a friend and then that person would join this group and, or somebody found a mate and started a family with another group. And what happened in this traffic between these different bands is what they call cross-cutting ties, mm. which is when you have all these slightly, you know, they're like fairly stable, but still kind of amorphous. They're fuzzy around the edges, these little so-called tribes or these little bands. And they're trading people all the time. It becomes a hedge against violence. This is Fry's argument. Hmm. is that because there are cross-cutting ties. So we may, if we're in competition for resources, look across the valley and see this other group and just be like, hate those guys, want to kill those guys and keep all the resources. Right. But if your cousin's over there, you're going to be like, well, my cousin's over there. Maybe they're not so bad. And then if you need to interact with them to share information, to share water, to share food supplies, whatever the needs of your band dictate, you can just go to your cousin and your cousin's going to be like, this, this person's okay. We can talk to this person. So while we are very wary of strangers, you can also make the argument that you know, civilization wouldn't have occurred if it wasn't natural to some degree for us to live amongst people we don't know, hmm. right? Because if we were inherently xenophobic, this city would just be on fire right now. Um, if you took, you know, I, I was talking to a guy named Michael Tomasello, who's an evolutionary psychologist at Duke, who's great. And uh, he, this is early in the research. Um, we were talking about apes because I get into apes in the book. Um, and Thomas L is like, yeah, we're, we're the hyper cooperative ape. Like we are the ultra cooperative ape. And I laughed and he was like, yeah, people always laugh at that, but like go pack a seven train with chimpanzees and watch what happens, right? It's not going to go well. It's going to be a bloodbath. Um, so yeah, I was trying to kind of move the perception away from the idea that we're by default xenophobic. It's much more complicated. It depends on the context, but when we are comfortable, when we are, you know, we're not under, we're not at war, we're not under threat. We do have a remarkable capacity to do this. We don't do it, and one of the reasons why you write is because we are, as a species, inherently afraid of rejection, right? We don't. This is why, and you, and you were you were the editor of Entrepreneur Magazine. This is why some people become entrepreneurs, but the vast majority of people don't, because to to, to start a business, you have to be prepared to hear no and to hear your idea sucks, or if it's so great, why isn't why why haven't a million people done it? It's the same kind of principle with approaching a stranger. And being rebuffed, it's, it, it doesn't make us feel good. So there's something about that, I think, inside of us as a species. And I, again, I'm just – this is pop psychology here. But I, I have to think there's something about us as a species that's resistant to it because it's a survival mechanism. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some pretty interesting research on, on um, how people would use – sort of traditional societies would use – I don't even know what the word would be, ostracization, um, mm -hmm. how like they would ostracize people to punish them. And it was yeah. incredibly painful and it was incredibly dangerous. I mean, there was one one group that referred to it as leaving matters to the forest, the Mabuti, I think. Um, when they would ostracize somebody, they would just be like, all right, pal, you're on your own. And that person would die because they, they were social. They needed other people around, but they needed other people around to get food. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a pretty good argument you can make that we internalize that, that being rejected and being ostracized is incredibly painful because for the better part of our life on this planet, uh, it was a death sentence to be rejected. Uh, we're not we're not accustomed to this, you know. We, mm. it, it tends to be really hard, and people take it really personally. Um, you know, the good news is that, like I said, according to this this Nick Epley stuff, um, it's pretty rare to be rejected. 
Some people might be in a rush. They might be kind of confused about what you're doing. That's not necessarily rejection. Someone being like, get the hell away from me is rejection, but it's also a sign that you've done something very wrong, right? You're coming across as a creep or you're coming across as a threat. Um, but normally, people do tend to be pretty responsive, surprisingly responsive. Epley and Schroeder recreated this famous study they did in Chicago where they had people talk to strangers on the train. And, you know, you think it's the Midwest, it's Chicago, it's, it's a little friendlier than, than other places. Um, and then they redid it in London. Londoners <laughs> tend to think of themselves as the most unfriendly people in the world, which is hilarious because uh-huh. I'd never ex- experienced them that way. But they're, they can be a little aloof, they can be a little chilly. Um, and they got the same exact result in London. Huh. On the tube, having Londoners talk to other Londoners on the tube and found, again, that very, very, very few, if any, were rejected. Um, and most found that it was pleasant, it was interesting, the people were smart, they liked them, they enjoyed their commute. Um, so our fear of rejection is disproportionate, for sure. If you were to make an argument, the argument to somebody who was, wanted to like gain the skill, right? Because some people have it naturally and some people have to develop it. Would you say, hey, you know, this is really – um, this could be a great thing for you because you could collect stories about people. You have other stories to tell or you could make new friends or is it more just this kind of, hey, this is an ephemeral moment that's actually going to improve you and make you happier and make you more empathetic and make you better at navigating the world? Is that the reason why somebody who might be skeptical should think about doing be, – being more – intentional about this? Yeah, I try to sell it not as like vegetables. So I wouldn't lead with the idea that this is like a bomb for partisanship and racism and things like that. um, Because that feels like duty. I try to make Mm -hmm. it seem personally enriching to people. um, Because it is, you know, it it really is. It's a, it's a, there's a sociologist named Elijah Anderson, who had a great line where he said that when you talk to people across borders of difference, people are different than you are. um, It gives you it gives you a life that couldn't otherwise be led. Uh, and I really like that. It just gives you access to the world in a way that you didn't have before. Um, you know, recently I've been thinking about this more, and this I didn't put this in the book because I didn't think of it at the time. But we're remarkably cynical and pessimistic about our fellow humans. And I'm starting to wonder if that's the result of getting incomplete data. So if I'm experiencing the world on my phone or on Twitter or things like that, I'm not going to have a super positive perception of what humans are. Uh, like Twitter is pretty negative. There's some great stuff on it, but it's, it's pretty ugly. It can be pretty ugly. You read the news, the news tends to focus on negative things. When we withdraw from the world, and I think we have in a way, when we withdraw from the company of other people, like in-person contact, we start to rely more and more and more on news sources and social media to form our perception of what the world is and what motivates people. And it becomes very negative. And then that gives us that negative perception makes it even less likely that we're going to make the effort to engage with people. When I was doing this book, I met a lot of people who had a hard time, people who were traumatized, people who had been attacked, mm-hmm. people who had dealt with, um, you know, really vehement racism. Um, and these are people who advocate for doing this, for going out and having these conversations. And they kept telling me again and again um, that it made them feel better about people. Like Danielle mm-hmm. Allen is a, is a political scientist at Harvard. Um, she talks to strangers all the time. She's actually running for governor of Massachusetts now. But she said that though I've had bad experiences in public, talking to people on a regular basis um, makes me feel better about humanity. And for me, I think it's a question of data. I think it's a question of gathering better data than we're getting at present, which is just poisonous stuff. And I, you know, I always joke, I came out of 2019 
um, I was the only person I know who felt better about humanity <laughs> coming out of 2019, hmm. right? Because I had just been gathering data and I found that I could connect with people. I could talk to people. I was comfortable. They were, you know, overwhelmingly interesting and funny and lovely, and they were just good. And I didn't have to worry about them. Um, there's a lot that we have to worry about, but just kind of doing those sort of street level interactions on a regular basis and connecting with people just gives you a healthier perception of humanity. It doesn't mean that I think people are good. I don't think they're good. I don't think they're bad. I think it's, it's all context a lot of the times, but it was really reassuring to just get like a, a view of humanity that wasn't just the garbage that I had been ingesting, you know, most of my time. Have you, have you seen the show, uh, Ted Lasso? No, not yet. I don't have Apple TV. I need to get it. So just just briefly, like as a character, right? At least in the first season, um, he, you know, he's just eternally optimistic and positive and kind and friendly, and he he strikes up conversations with strangers and, and he gets rejected and and uh, rebuffed, but he just keeps pushing forward, you know. And I I don't think anybody who watches that show doesn't want to be at least sometimes a version of him during during parts of their day. Yeah, I, I need to see it. I heard it's great. I would add Matthew McConaughey to that to that small fraternity. I don't know if you read mm-hmm. his memoir, but he's he's just game. He's just out there. He's present. He's curious. He's open um, without being like vain or preening about it. He's just mm-hmm. in there. You know. I always think of like I've been thinking a lot about what what it would mean to be a patriotic American. Like what I love about America. Um, and that sort of attitude is kind of unusual. But I think it's actually. I think it's more common than you might think, those sorts of people. Mm-hmm. I definitely know those sorts of people who are just out there, who are there for people, there to talk. They're curious. They're really fluid socially. Um, unflappable. I think they do exist. Yeah, and unflappable. But you, you get that way just from doing it. You know, you lose your fear of rejection when you realize that it's just kind of rare or not as common as you think it is. But I love that as an ideal. One of the things I love about America is just the reputation we have for just being good at talking to people. You know, when Americans go abroad, I might spend time in Helsinki. No one talks to strangers in Helsinki. So everybody just thought it was like hilarious <laughs> that I was comfortable doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I love that. I love that, you know, we live in a diverse place that's always changing and it's made us kind of socially adept in a way. I think a lot of that is falling apart a little bit now, but at its best, America is is Ted Lasso. It's someone who's just like, sure, I'll give it a shot. Like, I'll talk to this person. Um, and I think that's kind of the way forward for us in a way. Like, curiosity is the way forward. Um, you know, engaging with one another, um, pushing back against dehumanization and all these kind of poisons to our society and, and like deriving our national identity from, from that kind of sociality. I, I really like that idea. You've been the editor of Entrepreneur Magazine. From the perspective, like, put your entrepreneur's head on for a sec – um, why do you think that that developing the skill, and it may be an obvious question, but I, I'm just curious to hear your, your take on it. Are these skills, if they're skills, and I think they are, or practices, let's say, are they are they important for somebody who, who wants to become successful as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, there's an argument you can make that like people who work in tech don't necessarily have to do it, but they do, Mm -hmm. especially when they become managers. Um, When they start to accumulate power, you really need to be able to connect with people. Um, Yeah, it's interesting, you know, having come from the background of of working at Entrepreneur, I used to hear that all the time when I talked to people. Um, Again, it was remarkably common that people would be like, you know, my dad used to make me talk to strangers and I hated it, but now I understand the value of it. I interviewed a construction superintendent who was a like late thirties, really successful woman working in, you know, what's traditionally a male industry. And she was a shy kid. And her father said uh, he used to make her call the pizza guy on Fridays. 
Um, and he wouldn't give her an order. She would have to figure out what to order from talking to the pizza guy because he was a plumber and he knew that it was really valuable to be able to communicate with people. Um, and she was uncomfortable doing it. And now she attributes like part of her success to the ability to be so, so socially adept that she's comfortable talking to an architect and talking to a pipe fitter and talking to like the demo guys. All these people speak in a different way. But because she's gotten so good at talking to everyone, she can size people up quickly. She can connect with them. She can understand what motivates them, what they need. Um, all those things are invaluable. You know, that social adeptness is really valuable to be put into any situation, connect with someone and talk to them um, and learn from them. You know, and the, the kind of bigger picture benefits of it are um, you meet clients, you talk to people who give you a, maybe a different perspective on what you thought was happening in the marketplace or in the world. You get a better sense of what motivates people, what's important to them, how to talk to them. You, you, you know, you understand the, the market a little bit more. You understand how you're perceived, which I think is really, really important for entrepreneurs, especially when you're the boss, to understand that it's important how people see you, right? Um, I think the major mistake that a lot of managers make is not caring about that, just being like, it's not my concern what, how people perceive me. Uh, but that makes people hate you after a while, like to understand how you're coming across, which you can learn to do by studying the reaction that people are having to you when you're speaking. Are they interested? Are they laughing? Are they backing away? Are they uncomfortable? All those things. It's really important. It's really invaluable. And I, I definitely learned that from from my father, but uh, I learned it from a lot of the entrepreneurs I spoke to, too, a, a lot of whom, you know, had these kind of this burning zeal for entrepreneurship, um, but also confessed that they were uncomfortable doing this. And um, they recognized that they needed to do it. They needed to get out there and they needed to practice and they needed to get proficient at it. You know, writing a book like this is it's a really optimistic book and it's an optimistic take. And it's a it's um it's aspirational. It's basically you're making the argument that the world will be a better place if we <laughs> If we do this, if we open up and talk to strangers, and I wonder um, whether the process of writing this book changed changed you or your kind of maybe made you a little less cynical if you were. Uh, yes. Yeah. The, the short answer is, is absolutely. It, it absolutely changed my life. Um, you know, growing up, like I said, grew up in Boston where it is the, the prevailing mode is cynical and skeptical mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. kind of hostile and cutting in a lot of ways. Um, I came out of that. You know, my family wasn't like that. They were very funny, but they weren't mean. Um, but there's a lot of like verbal combat that happened from the time I was a small child, just with friends, you know, out in the street. Um, and there's a lot of cynicism. And, uh, you know, I, I came through journalism. I've been a journalist for, for more than 20 years, and there's a lot of cynicism in that business. There's mm. a lot of skepticism. And skepticism, I would argue, is very good. Cynicism is pretty bad. Um, but I can't say that I was like a Pollyanna. I mean, I've never been the kind of person who's just like, love is the answer. I don't think love mm -hmm. is the answer. You know, I, I think that's a gross oversimplification of, of how humans respond to things. Um, I was, you know, I, I tend to be judgmental. I tend to be pathologically impatient. Um, this stuff didn't <laughs> come naturally to me. Um, but doing it, um, it really changed me. Uh, it really did. It's I'm, I'm much more optimistic now, even as the world is like on fire, right? Like we're we're in, we're entering dire straits here, and I think that's that's yeah. really true. I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, but from my own personal experience, and also kind of studying the deep history of humanity, we do have an amazing ability to cooperate um, if we feel comfortable doing it. If we make the effort to do it, and we're mindful of the complexity of it and the difficulty of it, but we're also we also appreciate how valuable it can be in terms of building societies and holding societies together, um, I think we can figure this out. But I think a choice needs to be made, and I think it's going to be years of rebuilding. You know, you look at American politics, I think this is a 20-year project. But it starts here. I think this is where it starts. 
That's Joe Cohane, author of the book, The Power of Strangers, The Benefits of Connecting in a Suspicious World. Fun fact, Joe used to play bass in a 12-piece funk band that jammed out in Philadelphia clubs and Baptist churches, which is one good way to meet people. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-Up Productions. 